This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. What's up, guys? My name is Evan Duvall. This is Easy Does It. Thank you for joining us. All right, guys. What's going on? Welcome to Easy's Listening Room and Studio. We're back for another Easy Does It podcast. Uh, I'm bringing in my friend today, Rob Kendrick. Let's bring that mic over, Rob. Let's grab that mic. Yep. Cool, man. Well, uh, so Rob and I uh, were introduced um, through community and family. Uh, We heard of each other um, in our travels and everything long before we actually met. Um, We sat down last week and met for the first time um, and started having this conversation um, about his career and uh, I'll let I'll let Rob do the introduction of just kind of what brought us to this point today. Okay. Um, I grew up in Spur, Texas and the Panhandle of Texas and um, wanted to be a truck driver because it was the only way I thought I could get out of that small town and see a little bit of America and and grow a little bit and when I was in high school I picked up photography and was just self-taught and decided I wanted to pursue this, but my family really didn't know how to support that because nobody in my family ever did anything creative. And, you know, it um, led me to East Texas State University, and I had a great instructor there, and photography has taken me to 84 countries uh, and all seven continents, and so a little bit broader than a truck driver, maybe, but uh, it's been a great experience. We first got linked up. Um, I was planning on doing the the Pacific Crest Trail hike, um, and I needed some gear as I was getting out of the military. Um, and I had my permits and everything. And then I got in touch with Rob um, because he had worked with Patagonia before, and uh, got me some deals on a bunch of gear as I was about to set off on this four month hike um, down from the border of Canada all the way down to the the border of Mexico. And that's how I was going to transition out of the Navy. Right. Um, and like three weeks before my trip, um, they revoked all the 2021 uh, passes for the trail. Bummer. So plans changed, uh, did a quick pivot, came home to Austin, and super glad I did. I uh, can't imagine not getting started on the, the four months that, uh, that transpired upon arriving home. But um, incredibly generous and... And then I started hearing stories about, you know, who Rob was. Um, I knew I wanted to meet him, um, at least have a coffee. Right. Um, but it's interesting to mic up these conversations and, and share them because there's so much value to be, you know, uh, shared in just a simple conversation of, of who someone is, where they come from, and then, you know, breaking down a career as, as beautiful as 32 years shooting for National Geographic. Um, that just, I, I knew this guy had some stories. Um, and the first project that I heard about and caught my eye, um, was this cowboy project. Right. And, uh, I'll let, I'll let Rob explain kind of how that transpired. 
Um, you know, I grew up in the Panhandle, like I said, and a lot of family members worked on ranches, and I'd been around these people, and I really respected the fact that they really weren't uh, interested in anything other than pursuing their own passion and not necessarily making money and working really hard. And so I proposed a story to Geographic to look at the evolution of the cowboy from Mexico all the way up to Canada, and I wanted to do it in this historic process using tintypes. And they bit off on it. And so I got to drive 41,000 miles from northern Mexico all the way up to British Columbia and every state west of the Mississippi and photograph on 68 ranches and had just an amazing time to get out on all this private property and uh, meet some really interesting people that had, you know, pretty simple but focused uh, uh, passions and uh, just had a great time with them. Yeah, I think it's it's an incredible story, and I'm so glad that we, we're continuing to share it because there's so much truth to it today. Um, in America, the, the squeakiest wheel gets the grease, it seems, you know, and we often forget that maybe the loudest narrative isn't always the truest. There's a lot more to the story um, about the majority of our country that lives in very simple manners, um, and we can't forget that's, that that is truly who we are. Um, in our hearts and you know this this project and the way we grew up in, in central Texas um, it reminds me of, of my childhood of of growing up in Dripping Springs Texas and and spending my time horseback and and just what that taught me um, as a kid you know long long before I really knew how special it was it just it just was you know I knew there was work involved I knew there was expenses involved <laughs> Um, but you know what horses gave me from a young age was just respect for an animal and the power that they yield and and hearing these stories that we're about to share with y'all um, from this project is just that that teaches a human being so much and it goes back a long time and I think uh, on this project I I wanted to capture the voices of these people because they have a very beautiful way of speaking and they use very specific words, but it's not in, intentional. It's, I mean, it is intentional, but it's very natural. I mean, it's, uh, they choose their words because they know who they are and they uh, believe in what they do. So um, yeah, they, I think a lot of these uh, audio things that you'll hear, Evan's condensed some of them down, but if you listen to them just straight, uh, there wasn't any editing in some of them. It's just one line coming out so yeah i thought that was beautiful that there wasn't you know a lot of you know work on the editing side because they had spent enough time in their heads and they were clear on their message because it's just who they are like they've had the time they've had the space they're not overly stimulated um and so you know they're not confused as we are with so much stimulation and so many avenues or pursuits that we can take as individuals, right. um, you know, their path is clear and we can all be inspired by that and try to find that daily. Um, and, you know, you'll hear the stories. And one thing that caught my uh, ear and, and, you know, I was fixated on was like at first glance, you may not think that like they're speaking intelligently, but when you really listen to the, the nature of their words and the wisdom that is, is coming through is there is no doubt that these are wise, intelligent individuals and, you know, you don't need a college degree and, or, you know, uh, three letter syllables after your word or whatever's going on to, to, to show people 
you know, who you are and what you're worth is. Exactly. Um, it's just enough. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the photos and these stories, um, I would like to describe the tintype process. Okay. Um, I read in the afterward, it was, it was very involved. Um, and that was something that w- was also, you know, interesting to me was, you know, long hair, earrings <laughs> coming in on these working ranches and, and, you know, presenting like, Hey, I want to take photos of y'all. And, and from my impression, like you had a uphill battle of, of kind of getting these guys respect well, for some of them. And yeah, I think they, I mean, photographers show up all the time on ranches and they think photographers have the easiest job in the world, just taking pictures. And, but I was using this uh, 70 pound camera and everything was a lot of work. And I had a portable darkroom and they could come in this 14 foot trailer and see how hard it was to make each individual plate. And, um, you know, on first arrival, you get a lot of shit from these guys, uh, and you just got to give it back to them in a respectful way. You can't cower down because they don't respect, respect that. If you can throw it right back in their face and they get a laugh out of it, you're making progress. And that's, and I knew that just growing up around these guys. And, yeah. and so, you know, long hair earring, I would just throw it back and, and give it back to them. And, uh, I can't tell you how many of these guys I still stay in touch with. Uh, you know, a few of them I've lined up and gotten married. They got in the, they got in the book and wanted to me to introduce them to girls. And <laughs> I said, you got to come to this museum opening. And one guy, Tom Bowerman, uh, he came to every museum opening I had, and I kept introducing him to you know attract. And he ended up marrying Devin, and they've been married. Uh, 16 years so <laughs> said I'm not responsible for it I just <laughs> yeah so. yeah you'll, you'll hear the the wit and the humor that comes through in these recordings um, and it reminds us that you know that that's what gets you through hard work um, you got to have a sense of humor about you you know to deal with the elements in that way I saw a lot of that throughout my Navy training and and being in some pretty shitty spots where you know, the only way to get through was really with a smile and, you know, a cock of an eye and, and uh, you know, those that are around you and just just relentlessly ripping on each other. But there, <laughs> there's so much to be said to do that in a respectful manner. Um, and I just want to go ahead and, and get into these, these photos sure. because um, you'll start to hear these audio clips. And I want you all to take a moment um, to just start to connect uh, these voices these stories um, with these faces um, and I think it's a beautiful way so we can go ahead and take off the headphones we'll give it a listen and we'll throw them right back on. Uh, Royce Hansen uh, is my name. I was born in eastern South Dakota, born and raised in a farm, went to work at early age uh, Missouri River breaks from there on just cowboyed my whole life several states, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Nevada, now back here in Montana, and it's just uh, a way of life that come easy, solitude, God, nature, and animals. My name's Ronnie Melton, I grew up in Odessa, Texas, on the western side of Texas. Uh... First job I ever really had was when I was 12 for Hooper Cattle Company, and from there on, it's been a life now. 
just in case I was uh, born in Idaho and uh, moved to Oklahoma and just kind of come back up here just cowboyed around a little you know uh, worked in several feed yards and outfits all over and well you know just just like to aggravate cows you know I eat beef to get even so my name is Dan Locke and I work for Van Norman Ranches in Tuscarora, Nevada. I'm originally from Lodi, California. And how I got into ranching is it's something I've always wanted to do. Um, my dad was a cowboy and my grandpa was a cowboy and as far back in my pedigree as it goes, we were all cowboys. It's pretty unique. I think that's why we were uh, made the way we are so that we could ride horses. I mean, that's why we were split in the middle so we can throw a leg over each side and and go somewhere a horseback. It, you know, that's the way I feel. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm Steve Etchison. I'm 27 years old. I live down here at the JAs, just down here at Paldera, Texas. Um, married, I got four boys, and they go from six years old down to one month old, and they all want to punch cows for a living, and they're probably going to get their chance down here because we ain't leaving. I sure wouldn't want to live in town ever again. And if that day ever happens, so hopefully the only day when I go to town is the day they're putting me in the ground. After that, I don't... I don't much care for, for town anyways. My name is Jody Miner. I was I've been born and raised in Montana and raised in the cowboy lifestyle. I guess I went from being a cowboss's daughter to being a cowboss's wife. <laughs> um I'm proud of what I do. I'm proud to be a cowboy or cowgirl, however you want to word it. I read a quote once that's, I've always remembered it because it really meant a lot to me when I read it. I can't tell you. The best thing about being a woman or a cowgirl is having the ability to work like a man, but the wisdom to know when to be a lady. And I just, I've always thought that was really neat and I've kind of I feel like I I try to live my life kind of along those same lines. My name's Tom Morehouse, and I'm 59 years old, and I was born and raised on a ranch between Benjamin and Guthrie, Texas, that my dad owned, Morehouse Ranch, and actually that's the only place I've ever lived. I don't remember the first time I rode, and I don't remember the first time I smelled burning hair from a branded calf, and I couldn't tell you how to ride a horse because it just seems to me that anybody could ride a horse because <clears throat> it, that's the way it was for lots of cowboys. They were just born around horses and rode before they were old enough to remember. My name is Roger Peters. My wife, Carrie, and I own and operate the Dragging Y Cattle Company in Beaverhead County, Montana. My family had a small ranch in northern Colorado 
got kind of pressured from population there, so we moved up here in 1972. Now we see people starting to move to Montana, but I don't know where we'd go next. I don't know where you'd find any more open country, so this is probably where we'll stay. We've raised seven kids on the ranch. We've got one daughter three years to go, and then we'll have them all raised on the ranch, and that was our big goal because kids learn a lot of responsibility and initiative working around livestock and taking care of little bum calves that kind of depend on you for everything. So we, we tend to stay outside all day every day and if things get tough around this part of the world all you got to do is look up at the mountains and gaze around you a little bit and, and it sure makes you happy to be here. I tell everybody I've never worked a day in my life. It's all been fun. Whew, some memories. Yeah, man, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine what that brings up, but um, I want to dive into it, man. Um, the first thing that speaks to me throughout those pictures, um, utilizing the, the tintype process, is how timeless those pictures look. And this was 2004, right? Right. And so, I mean, this is a, mo a pretty modern, you know, way of cowboying and you look at their outfits and the, the utility of their wear and, and, and there's nothing excess, but I mean, it could look like late 1800s, early 1900s in a sense, especially the ones where, you know, they've got their families they are just very simple. Right. Well, I think, I think, um, the tools of being a cowboy haven't changed mm -hmm. in over you know since it started right everything's still done uh all the gear they're wearing i mean these guys right here that are buckaroos which are nevada uh california parts of uh oregon um they all wear these flat brimmed hats and tooled brush cuffs and big uh wild drags and they do that because they don't make a lot of money but these guys spend their money on their gear because they want to look what they call punchy. They want to look good for the girls. And, and so the young, single, feral guys spend all their money on gears, gear trying to attract, uh, you know, girls. And, um, and they like to look good themselves. You know, they're kind of proud of it. But um, it's also very functional stuff. You'd never see anybody in Texas wear this because you've got mesquite trees and cactus and things like that. So... Why would you spend all this money on hand-tooled brush cuffs and things that are just going to get torn up? So mm -hmm. um, every region, you know, Texas has its look. Buckaroos have have their look. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because there's just subcultures within it. But the tools, I mean, an iPhone would be about the uh, biggest thing you'd see that these guys have now. And they, they'll pull their horses in a gooseneck uh trailer to the so that that's gotten more efficient but once right. once they're working the cattle it's basically hasn't changed yeah yeah i think <clears throat> when i was thumbing through the book as well um how it opened up in that with that essay you know about um there's this this woman that was um invited to the queen's palace and for a party and it would the invitation basically said to wear your country's formal wear or business attire um, and so when she showed up at this party, she felt so out of place as an American um, because all of these other countries had such beautiful, you know, garbs and traditional wear that represented who their, their culture was. Um, and it got her thinking about, you know, what does a, a typical American dress like, you know? And we extend those thoughts is that 
you know, the cover of a fashion magazine? Is that streetwear? Is that, is it business attire? What is it, you know? Right. And so to see, you know, your photographs capture that, um, that remind us of, you know, just, uh, you know, a very simple, you know, way of, of, you know, getting the job done and, and wearing clothes that help you do that. And, and, uh, to capture that in a still shot in tintype was just, it's beautiful, beautiful translation. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, you know, the process does actually correlate with the start of ranching in this country because it's, the process is from 1853. So it kind of sinks right in with, uh, the time that ranching started. So. Yeah. I heard one of the guys talking <clears throat> about, uh, we're not using four wheelers out here. We're still horseback. Right. You know? Exactly. And that was something I always learned was, you know, you, you fancy it up with technology and you're just asking for problems. Like right. it's going to break at some point. So keep it simple and, and uh we can all learn from that um as we go into life and look like we are in the middle of a city we're here in austin texas this is a period of growth um there's everywhere we turn there's parties there's events there's you know job offerings everything is exploding um but just to to have it in the back of your mind of how simple life can be at, at least on the side of your perspective um can be enough to reset you um, so for us, that might be a, a swim in the springs or, you know, a walk on the green belt or in nature. Um, but thankfully, Austin, Texas is a place where you can get, you know, intertwined with nature pretty quickly um, instead of just being isolated, you know, in the middle of the city. Well, I think like Roger Peters, the last guy said, you know, just, you know, stop and look, take that moment mm -hmm. to, to just stop and appreciate what is around you, whether it's another person or the beauty of the place but just yeah. stop for that moment and, and take it in so yeah it's usually not far right you just gotta exactly. <laughs> just be looking for it um so rob i want to talk more about kind of what this project has given you is there is there any sense that you know this is a, a major project a major effort to to you know visit this many states and work your way into these ranches but I just imagine that these the lessons that you take away and still have to look upon and cherish and and walking through your house there's no shortage right. of of memories up on your walls and right this, these are just a few I mean I think the the main thing is I mean I was always kind of a person that wasn't um what, what would you call it an introvert extrovert you know I'm not somebody that will um put myself out there very easily but you give me a camera and I'm very interested in people but the camera was the vehicle that allowed me to go meet um, people and ask questions and and get nosy and mm -hmm. so um, you know meeting so many of these people I mean there's a handful that uh, probably I wouldn't care to connect with again but I would say probably 95% of them I would definitely spend time with again and there's probably 80 of these people mainly guys but uh that i stay connected with on a pretty frequent basis just mm -hmm. you know we're you know steve etchison the guy who said he's got the four boys he's he shot his foot off with a shotgun eight years ago so he's not cowboying but i i you know just stay in touch uh with a lot of these uh people because you know we made a connection yeah yeah i think that's that's really unique and um, interesting, you know, place to position yourself and having a platform such as National Geographic <laughs> to to get your foot in the door. Um, but it's that's a good reminder for us all to to pay attentions and 
um, put the value in the relationships and and you know those those will last if you focus on that and and truly treat people right well I think I think treating people right I mean a few of the ranches I wanted to get on had a policy that they wouldn't allow photographers any longer because they had bad experiences and so in all three cases I just said you know do you know Bob Morehouse at uh, the Pitchfork Ranch and they said oh we know of Bob and I said well I'll give you his phone number you can call him and ask him if I'm respectful and you know low low um, low maintenance and and see if that'll uh, help and all three of them called Bob up and Bob said he's been coming on this ranch for 20 years you can let him in and all three you know so it was that I was respectful in the past led me to get the keys to three places that were shut off. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but I think it's important to do that. Beautiful, man. Well, um, I think we'll we'll get into some other stories, man. Okay. Um, it, it, that's an amazing project, and you know, I think I hope y'all take a moment after the podcast to look at these pictures, and and uh, I'll point you in the direction of of Rob's work. Um, there's a lot of hidden gems and the simplicity of this book and these photos and um i'll continue to to think back on them i'm sure as rob does every day okay um but uh let's move into you know this the the coal mine situation this was incredibly interesting to me um to hear about you know just how you worked your way into these mines right that uh that was the last story i did for uh national geographic which was uh, 2015, um, and I did a story on global uh, uh, dependence on coal, and you know the environment. Other than people, the environment's the most important thing to me, and so I really wanted to do this story, but didn't realize that it was going to be the hardest story I ever did for National Geographic, and it was because of the internet and phones. All of a sudden, you know, 30, you know, back in '86 when I would go to China or wherever, I could just be anonymous and roam around. But in 2015, you know, in China, I was in the dirtiest city in the world, 10 years running, and I had people photographing me, sending it to the local police department, and it just became a whole different, but so by far the hardest story I ever had to do, but uh, one I was passionate about trying to tell. And in China, you know, I would, I was telling Evan at uh, dinner tonight that, you know, the Chinese uh, uh, government wouldn't let me in the mines. And so I just went to a mine, left the interpreter on the side, and I just jumped on the employee bus and with a bunch of miners. And I was like, well, the first worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get, you know, um, arrested. And, you know, when you have an American passport, you have this uh, <laughs> blind faith that you're invincible, and it's probably pretty blind. Um but I didn't have any problems there. I did have problems in India. Uh, I don't know what pictures are up there, but um, like that picture there, these people, they spend 14 hours a day throwing rocks out of the, uh, off of the, um, that belt, uh, separating the rocks from the coal. And you can tell that they're just sucking in coal dust. And 14 hours a day, I think they made $2 a day. And there's definitely no OSHA safety in that. I mean, people get caught in those belts all the time. But that was a place that I got into just by hopping the fence. And I did get kicked out of there twice over a week, uh, but made the pictures. And I think, 
you know, the people in the photos never challenged me or never. Uh, and I think in a way they were supportive of me kind of showing their condition. They didn't have a lot of control over their condition and having me there to take the pictures, they never had, never had any pushback. So I just kind of felt like they wanted it seen. Um, and India, the mines there are illegal and they're 50 feet by 50 feet. And it took a while. Um, I found it, it's kind of like instead of the drug cartels in Mexico there, it's the coal, the illegal coal mining cartels. And uh, the interpreter I'd used since 92 said it's very dangerous. We got there, we connected with a hotel owner and asked to get access to these mines. And a guy showed up um, that was in his late 30s and he and I connected right away and his family owned a lot of these illegal mines and he took me to one and it was 600 feet down. And I don't know if that picture of the rickety ladders. Um, mm -hmm. That was the first one. It's just 600 feet down, 50 <clears throat> feet uh, at a time going. And these guys weigh 105 pounds and they're going down and there's water shooting out. And I weigh about, back then I weighed about 175 pounds and I had all my gear and the first the few ladders. steps, yeah, first few steps I took, I mean, those, those steps weren't gonna hold. And so they lowered me down in a bucket that they'd haul the coal out. So I went down 600 feet, worked down there for several hours and then they pulled me out. And when they were pulling me out, they had a guy walking up that ladder with a rope to make sure the full bucket didn't swing and knock all the ladders out. And I was telling Evan, we got about 150 feet up and the thing dropped about six feet. And uh, we went up a little bit higher and it dropped again about a foot. And the guy holding the rope had a really concerned look on his face. And I'm like, okay, if he's concerned, I probably sh should be concerned. And the guy running the makeshift crane, which was three I-beams welded together with a Honda generator, he was up up there with uh, shorts and flip-flop, uh, kind of like I am, except, uh, uh, and he was running my life up there. So we got up to about 500 feet and it dropped another four feet. And I was like, I am never coming down in one of these mines again if I get on the ground again. And I got off and that night I went into the hotel and I looked at my digital work and I was like, I'm going back. So the next day I went to another mine and I mean, the, the pictures were just amazing. So, but um, you know, it's, it was, it was uh, a challenging project and a lot, and, and something that turned out to be for geographic, I think the third most read story that year uh, was that, that project. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, through this project, as I was looking through these photos, and I spoke about this with a friend yesterday, just kind of, you know, do you ever look around and just wonder, like, how, how did I get here? You know, and you can usually add up the pieces, but uh, sometimes it's just beautiful and amazing. And, you know, I, I can't imagine the situations you found yourself in around the world, um, you know, as your job took you, you know, into these very unseen places and like you said kind of giving the voiceless a voice um and being able to do that with a tool um and you had refined this craft and and to do that for for 32 years is is amazing you know the stories and the places and the people um and everything um another thing that you know caught my uh, attention was 
you know, how your career kind of came to an end. Um, and it's something that I really want to touch on tonight um, was obviously we all use technology in different ways. We all, you know, look at our, our crafts and the way we do our jobs differently. Um, and, you know, to hear the perspective um, of a guy that worked for, you know, National Geographic for 32 years and then the story of kind of how it ended was was beautiful to me. Well, yeah, so there there was a new editor that came on at National Geographic, and um, I was about to leave in two weeks to go on a, a two-month project, and she came on board, and I was the only one that didn't do social media, the only photographer that worked there that didn't do social media. And she put her foot down and said, if you want to leave on this, even though I had a signed contract, and they were bound by it. Uh, she said, you can't do this story unless you do Instagram and Facebook. And and I just told her, I said, I don't, uh, those are tools. I just don't use those tools. And never, I've never, my kids are on Instagram and my mother, their grandmother has to send me pictures because I don't know how to access this, don't want to know how to access mm-hmm. it and never had anything. And so I just said, no, I'm, I'm good with punting and she's like you're not going to go and I'm like no I'm not going to do social media I don't I don't use it and if that's the criteria then I'm done and so that was that was it I closed the books and I sold all my gear I don't uh, my phone is my camera (laughs) and I'm totally fine with that I mean it's 32 years it's a chapter and loved every minute of it and got to do more in my life than I ever thought I would and meet so many great and interesting people but um i was ready for you know something else not uh to be forced to do something and i'm not if you use it but most people yeah. do i that's fine it works for you it's 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 cool it's not doesn't work for me yeah i've no, seen too absolutely. many people get in fights with people they don't even know about usually about politics and i'm just like yeah it's poisonous yeah so. Well, it's definitely a tool, and I always say if, if you're not using it and it's using you and if you don't need to use it at all, then don't, Yeah, you know, but uh, a, a lot of us in this room do, oh, yeah. um, and that's why I wanted to kind of bring that up is just to assume that it's something that we have to do. There's always a way to, to reconnect and bring it back, you know, to real moments like this and conversations and sharing space. Um, it's it's, uh, it's uh, having a presence on social media um, it can be used to, to raise awareness and to expose people to perspectives that they wouldn't ordinarily hear, but it's ultimately not the direction that we want to go. Well, I think yeah. it is a great tool. Yeah. Uh, there's a photographer, Jimmy Chen, who's yeah. an incredible mm-hmm. climbing photographer. Amazing. And when uh, there was the uh, accident in the Kumbu Icefall up in Everest Base Camp and mm-hmm. all the Sherpas died, yeah. he got together with five photographers that had photographed uh uh, extensively in Nepal, and he contacted me and said, "Hey, uh, we're doing a fundraiser to help the the widows of the those killed. Can we uh, use some of your photos?" And I said, "Absolutely." So I gave him five photos, and he said, "Hey, can you put this up on your Instagram page?" And mm-hmm. we're trying to raise a hundred thousand dollars. And I said, "I'll send it out via email." I said to my people, "I said I don't do," and he was just like, "You don't do any social?" Yeah. I said, "No," and they ended up raising, I think, 700000 wow. So, wow, here's this tool that will raise $700,000 yeah. for a really great cause. And so 
believe me, I you know social uh, social media for social uh, causes. That's that's yeah. great. Uh, so Absolutely. I know it's powerful and used well. It's it's how can you beat that? So. Yeah. When was your first uh, Everest trip? Ninety one. Ninety one. Yeah, the first all Sherpa ascent of Mount Everest. Wow. Uh, so that, that was actually my first story for the Yellow magazine, and they they'd asked me to go do a story on the Gulf Coast of the U.S. For nine months, and I said no. That that they asked me at twenty five to go do that, and I said no, I don't want to do that. And they said you don't want to do a story for us. I said if I'm going to spend nine months on my of my life on something, I want it to be something I care about. Mm-hmm. I don't care about the Gulf Coast of, of the U.S. I said more power to anybody that does. It's just mm-hmm. not my interest. Right. And so they, I didn't hear from them for three months, and. Um, and he said, how about the first uh, Sherpa ascent of Mount Everest? And I said, that's interesting to me. I'll, I'll During that three that. months, were you kicking yourself in the foot at any point? Or you, uh, you had know, faith it would work out? I, I just, I've always been somebody that just kind of uh, goes with intuition. Yeah. And I'm not going to say it's always right, but I can be at peace if I, if something doesn't work out. It was the decision I made. Yeah. I don't want to, uh, just like, uh, punting on the last story for geographic over uh, social media i don't have any regrets because i don't i don't want to do it mm-hmm. and so it ended but uh just new things opened up just like your pacific uh, uh trail yeah. uh, happened didn't happen right so mm-hmm. you had to improvise and move and things work out yeah you know absolutely yeah i think for me that's that's ultimately you know my you know, guide is just that internal feeling and call it following your heart or, um, you know, intuition, whatever it is, you know, like we ultimately usually know the answer. It's how much we're impacted by, you know, social expectations or others' expectations of or roles or identities. And that's where everything gets confusing. But usually we end up making our way back to what we originally knew in our hearts. Right. It's just whether we want to lean into that or or not. Um, and I'm not saying by any means that, you know, clarity or intuition is the easy route, no. um, because that's usually the, the past, the path of most resistance. Well, I got three years of, from my wife asking, are you sure you, you did the right thing with that? <laughs> like, I know I did the right thing. So, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, you know, but for her, it was just like you. Yeah. yeah. I think this is, uh. Yeah, which, which trip was this? That, that's the first trip. That's in 91 wow. going up to the Everest Base Camp. And you said you carried 900 rolls of film yeah, on is, your back. <laughs> yeah, this is back. Uh, well, I had a Sherpa uh, carrying stuff. So, uh-huh. so I had 40 pounds of camera gear. But, camera gear yeah. but back then it was, you know, no internet, no sat phones and film. So I had 900 rolls of film and I was there for four months. Uh, and so, you know, it's... I, I actually like that being just disconnected and away from everything and immersed. Um, sorry, I didn't hit the mic there, but uh, just like being immersed. And so, you know, when digital cameras came around, you know, I was amazed that, you know, how many times people will shoot pictures. You'll see it. You know, you can watch any football game, uh, college football game, and if they show photographers, they're looking at the back of their cameras or at the Olympics. Uh, and I'm just like, you know, I had to go on uh, just pure fear because I, I uh, worked up there for six weeks. You know, didn't see a single picture because it's all film. 
I flew back in a Pilatus, uh, you know, Pilatus uh, porters. Mm-hmm. So the only airstrip up there is a, a, a stall strip. I flew down to Kathmandu, shipped my film via DHL, had two days to eat good food, yeah. and then go back up and eat lentils for another six weeks. I didn't see my first picture. I left in February of 91, and I saw the first pictures in August of 91. Wow. So All faith. It's all well. It's all faith and and fear because yeah, fear, you're just yeah. fearful that you're going to screw up, and yeah. this is your your first story or every story was that way when it was filmed. It's just like oh, I hope I got that, you know. But mm-hmm. but I think that's what kept, you know. I think a lot of times with digital, you can get at the end of a day. It's ten hours. You've been working all day. You're tired. You, yeah, that looks good. I think I'm done. Mm-hmm. But with film, you would just go shoot, until shoot, shoot. you couldn't shoot anymore because you were just fearful that you didn't get it. So, mm-hmm. so that's so. There's this progression of film, and then working your way to tin type as well. I, I imagine that's the holy grail of of you know for, processing. For me, yeah, for me, for the, the thing that. Uh, I was attracted to because I went from film, which really took a lot of skill set to mm-hmm. shoot transparencies. Then I did digital, and I loved how versatile it was to be sh- shooting at 5,000 ISO with no flash, 600 feet down in the ground. It's like, that's amazing. But in the end, the reason that I like uh, Tintype is you're making a positive image in the camera so there's only one mm-hmm. there's no negative the only way i get prints of these is to scan the positive if you've seen these uh civil war movies they'll show somebody holding a tin type well that's what it is it's a positive on a piece of metal so there's only one so it's like one object so you know when i shoot i shot two pictures and uh the first one he moved just a little bit but when i got this one i was done you know i don't you know you don't get 200 of them you don't mm-hmm. get five of them so to have a one-off object uh only daguerreotypes and tintypes are the only two photographic processes that yield one-offs i thought it was also interesting that everything is uh reversed in these pictures right yeah so well everything in photography optically mm-hmm. is reversed anyway if you these big view cameras that um i use to make this if you get underneath one it's upside down and backwards and that's the way <laughs> Your 35 millimeter camera just turns it all mm. the proper way right. through the mirrors. So, um, you know, if you didn't back in the day of printing a black and white negative, you printed it emulsion side down because you wanted, if it had a, a word in there, you wanted to to read r- correctly. But mm-hmm. it's, but that's uh, so everything is backwards here. What was this one here? Is oh, uh, that was actually uh, Geographic had this. Uh, uh, series called zip codes and i did one and i just said well i looked up and guantanamo bay had a zip code and i said what about doing one on guantanamo bay because we had the detainees there and they said yeah good luck if you can get into guantanamo with a camera and i said okay so i called dc and i ended up getting connected to this marine that was connected to Guantanamo's uh, uh, operations in Washington. His last name was Kendrick. And, and so we chatted a while, several times over the phone, and he said, let me see what I can do. And he pulled the strings and got me on. Wow. And when I was there, um, 
the rule was you can only photograph the detainees from the back from the shoulder blades down and that's pretty limiting and i was doing other things the whole kind of guantanamo experience not just the detainees but when i went with uh, a group of other media people this woman lori who was former military working as a contractor there overseeing the press and we were out and it was just blinding white rock and everywhere we went every time i pulled my camera up she'd yell out no 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 and it's just sounds for, about right for about sounds like government work for an hour and a half and so there was a watering station i filled up my water bottle and she came over and i had my finger on the button just finished and she put her water bottle right under like okay you're gonna fill mine up and i just looked at her and i said no <laughs> and i said no and i said maybe and i said okay and I filled it up. And I said, see how that works? I said, no, all the time is a real pain in the ass. I said, <laughs> maybe it gives you a little bit of hope. And yes, every now and then is throw me a bone. Yeah. And she's like, okay. And I said, okay, Lori, after lunch, I said, I don't want to go with the rest of the press. I want to go with you and you let me do whatever I want. You guys get to edit all this stuff. So I said, you let me do, just give me 15 minutes to do so she let me in the uh, area where all the detainees were, and I just shot like 900 pictures in 15 minutes, knowing I wanted to throw away about 650 of them to just show that I'm giving, mm -hmm. but I want to keep a few. And so she looked at all the pictures, and she pulls this up, and I just went over and pixelated. I said, you can't tell who that guy is. So I just pixelated the face, and... And I said, we'll come back to that. So I'd go, I'd throw out 75, I'd get to another one I really wanted, and I'd pixelate the face. And we just went back and forth like that, and she let me keep 20 images, and like this. And so as soon as I left that, I went back to where I was bunking up. Mm -hmm. I made copies, copies on copies, put it in the computer in case she changed her mind. I wanted yeah. to have it. And I, I even put in the dirty underwear bag I had, you know, like taped it. Smuggled you know, it Just out. like Prison anyway. style. Yeah, yeah. So it was, uh, this was challenging. But again, I think in the end, it's just my interest in people and trying to connect and find a way to, you know, with these people, it's connecting on that bullshit kind of level, get, get their acceptance with with Lori, it was a different level, but you know, in the end, it's just all kind of trying to find a connection and a way to connect. Right. Yeah. yeah. How to communicate with people. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Let's uh, let's open it up to the room. I'd like to get uh, into a Q and A here. So if anybody has any questions, we'll go ahead and pass this mic around and and uh, we'll shoot and see what we can touch on for Rob. Anybody got any questions? Which of the cowboys that you ever interviewed was the most memorable and why? Well, probably have to be two. All right. You can give me two. <laughs> two. That works. Uh, Royce Hansen, the guy in the beginning. If you listen to his full interview, I mean, the thing I like about Royce is how raw and open he is and, and kind of sharing his mistakes in life because if you listen to the full interview, he's, you know, right after he says what he, what was played up here, he, he said, have a pretty good wife. 
probably ruined her with all this business. But he's at the end of his career. He's 70. And he's just basically real reflective of what he loves about it. But also, you know, maybe the hardship he put his family through, his wife especially. And I just liked that he was open enough to share that. Because a lot of guys might not, you know, they're tough or whatever. So, so he was great. And then I laughed when Justin Case. I was wondering about him. You had a very big reaction. Well, because his name is Justin Rogers. And he he represents the, the, the far end. Royce is the end of the career. Ronnie Melton, he's got two kids. He's kind of midlife, married. And Justin is young. He's single. He's feral. He is just a wild dude. And... You know, he says, you know, uh, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, every now and then uh, a feller wants to rope something just to hear, hear it beller. He said, I just like to aggravate cows, kick a dog, just be happy, you know. And I saw Justin a year after I took the picture at the World Champion Working Cowboy Rodeo in Amarillo, Texas. And it was 10 o'clock at Sunday morning. And he, had, he was already drunk, had a six-pack of beer, walking around the exhibit hall looking at saddles and stuff. And, and you know, he's just funny. He's uh, just... Roy's hand. Oh. Oh. Yeah, so, so he's just, uh, just a funny character on the other end of the spectrum, just the wild, single guy. Um, yeah. So. I love that. Thank you for yeah. No uh, other than uh, Everest, where was like the most remote place you went where you felt like you were like, if something went, I mean, something goes down Everest, yeah, it's scary, but like, where was the most remote place other than that? Remote, like uh, isolated? Like isolated, yeah. yeah. Antarctica. I went to Stonington Island, which is below the Antarctic Polar Circle for uh, uh, eight weeks, and it was right after the Nepal story. Um, so after Nepal, after the Sherpa story in 91, they asked me to do a story on Robert E. Lee. And I said, I have no interest in Robert E. Lee. And uh, so then they called for another story. I said, no interest in that. And and they, they weren't used to people saying no. But I just know that my time, and it, I, you know, over the years I worked for them, I'd be gone at 180 to 300 days of the year so the ability to connect with people locally and have really in-depth friends all my friends are basically my closest friends are from college and so you know if you're going to give up it better be something you're interested in and so they called and said okay we need you to go to Antarctica and I said well I don't I don't live in Texas because I love the cold. And he said, well, the photographer that was assigned to go there didn't pass a Navy physical. And the reason the Navy was the only place that was going to be able to extract somebody if there was a medical condition. And so the Navy's requirement was that you had to uh, pass a Navy physical. So I had to fly to D.C. and do a physical, and I passed it. And so they said, you got to go do this for us because we're in a a bind. They're leaving in two weeks. So I went down there, and it was— it was interesting. Again, this is 1992, and so there are ham radio operators uh, doing the uh, communication. And it was kind of funny because uh, there was a, a guy from British Antarctic Survey who was from Scotland, and I, I could not understand this guy. I mean, every time he spoke, I had to have him 
repeat it three times because he had such a strong <laughs> Scottish accent. And uh, we would get to communicate once a week with somebody at home. And so at the time, my girlfriend, um, uh, you know, I'd make a communication and they'd do this thing over, you know, where the guy would flip the switch over. And Jeannie would say something that was um, intimate. <laughs> and I had to announce to her that, hey, you know, this is an open mic. There's 10 other guys here, no women. Uh, so you might. <laughs> and it was funny because the writer on the story, Mike Parfit, he tried desperately to get a hold of his girlfriend for six weeks. <laughs> and she was never available and i said mike are you sure she's not a ghost i said you know she's never shown up so it was there was a lot of fun ribbing going <laughs> on about that but that was that was isolated uh but be, and i'm not a big landscape person but i uh, love the environment but man that was uh, pretty dramatic that when we took the boat uh back through a lot of these channels you know just looking out and knowing that you know a lot of what you're looking at has never been set foot on by people it's pretty pretty amazing to think about you know beautiful any other questions yeah with some let's get that mic <clears throat> sounds like you've been all over the place a few places <laughs> are there any uh, experiences or people that you've met that have affected how you think or your values absolutely I mean, I, th I think, you know, the happiest people prior to the Internet, the happiest people I ever met were always people that were disconnected from communication because they had their family, immediate family, their extended family, their faith and their their community. So they never seemed unhappy. You know, after the Internet became pretty widely um, available, I mean, I think people then all of a sudden have a um uh a yardstick on how bad they have it you know uh in their eyes or what they don't have and um but probably one of the most powerful things i was in india photographing this uh story i went to 12 different countries on the impact of um industrial fishing and how it impacts local uh artisanal fishermen and i was in india and I was photographing this guy on the beach repairing nets and just beautiful over in um, the state of Kerala. And after I spent about an hour there, and again, it's so, so many people are gracious to allow me to even just be there and photograph what they're doing. And that was always appreciated because I always remember, you know, a lot of Americans probably wouldn't allow or feel comfortable having a foreigner just pop into their space and start taking photographs but i never had really any bad experiences you know except e egypt uh, and, and uh, Qatar. uh but that's just more of a cultural thing uh than than personal but um but anyway when i finished photographing this guy i went over to get his name and and he had polio and he couldn't walk um and so he asked the interpreter arvind if we could come and meet his wife and his uh, kids for tea that evening. This guy is like poorer than you can even imagine. And we went there that evening and uh, had tea and his wife 
came to the door and she also had polio. And what he wanted to do is show me his two kids who were perfectly healthy. And it was just, you know, just kind of really, uh, that experience was pretty powerful for me because, you know, we look around at what we don't have or whatever. And I look and always remember, and that was in 1994, uh, so whatever that is, 27 years ago, and it still sits with me as a real powerful thing. Just this guy lived in a you know 400 square foot thing uh, house, if you could call it that, and um, he was so proud of his two kids and working really hard. No complaint, no what, nothing. Just beautiful smile while I was photographing him before I knew he had a disability. And then sharing tea, you know, sharing. He has nothing. So, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I've, I've had, last couple of years I've had going through some uh, struggles, but I always remind myself I'm not a Syrian refugee. I'm not a woman in Afghanistan under Taliban. I'm not, my problems are pretty first world compared to, so I think being out and seeing so many things and how few things other people have and comforts other people have have always made me just grateful uh, for what I do have and not to ever take it for granted. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's an incredible lesson in that is, you know, that there's a lot of people um, in our society now that, you know, want to do the finger pointing and or talk bad about, you know, the opportunities that they were basically born into. And, you know, I think to to take that for granted or to bitch and moan about it, it's just a complete waste of time. And we can ask ourselves, all right, we have these platforms. Um, How can we use them if we're born into, you know, uh, a good situation or we're fortunate to have resources, then we, we have to use them. Um, and there's there's almost no part of this world that we can't reach now um, with platforms, with technology, um, and we can we can come together and truly truly sure. help. Yeah. So let's get uh let's get any, any other questions. Hi Rob. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Good. Hey mom, you gonna say hi to me or what? Hey Evan. Um, I just wanted to ask you, after you've been all around in all these beautiful places, what brought you back to Austin, Texas? Education, I guess. My kids, uh, we lived in Mexico, moved to Mexico when our kids were six and eight, and I just felt like they were both fluent in Spanish already, and I wanted them to uh, have the experience of living in a different country and a country that has plenty of challenges going on so they have a real perspective on how fortunate they are and but middle school got uh in the way and it was pretty bad middle school down there so we made a choice and came back to what we thought was going to be a great experience in dripping uh school system and the first thing the counselor asked uh she said well your kids have been in montessori school a private uh mexican school and you've homeschooled for a year can I ask if they can read and write? And I said, yeah, I think they've got that covered. And uh, and she went on to say how, well, you know, kids with homeschooling and these kinds of educational backgrounds, they need to learn how to fit into our program and this and that. 
And I just said to her, I said, well, it sounds like a 1920s way of breaking a horse. I said, you tie it to a post, whip the shed out of it until it'll take a saddle. And I said, my boys aren't going to do that. I said, they're, st- they're going to take control. And I said, if that doesn't work for you, then it's good to know that. So we ended up homeschooling for three more years. And, and you know, I think I was, I don't know if I was telling you or, I think, we, yeah, I, t- I told Pat, right? Nobody uh, ever gets us confused. Yeah, no, no, it's the beards, right? <laughs> but uh, so I was telling Pat that, you know, we studied ancient history for eight months and we went to Egypt, Turkey, Greece, and Italy for six weeks to go see everything they'd studied so they could experience. And, you know, we're fortunate that my job and um, my wife was, uh, she, she's self-employed, so we had the flexibility of doing this. And I, again, just want them to know perspective on America is not normal <laughs> in any way as far as what we have. Um, and so, and we landed, uh, I was telling Pat, we got there um, the day Mubarak uh, got taken out of control. It was during Arab Spring. And so we were supposed to land in uh, Cairo a week after Mubarak and got overthrown. And my wife said, we're not going. And I called all these people I'd worked with in Egypt before. I said, it appears to be, if any a foreigner had been scratched in these demonstrations, it would be on the front page of the New York Times as some kind of attack. So I said, there's nothing. They said, oh, it's safe. It's safe. So we we got there, and Tahir Square had tens of thousands of people, and we got to go to Giza when there were six foreigners there instead of 30,000, and um, and spent two weeks in Egypt with nobody, uh, hardly there. And, and I took my kids down to Tahir Square, and held on to the back of their collars and, and just walked them around and said, we're here for ancient history, but this is, you know, current history and just take it all in. And, and uh, so that's what got us back. I, the f- four best years were down in Mexico for sure. So I was happy to be there and, you know, uh, came back and there's 18 peanut butters here at HEB instead of one down in Mexico. So that was that was the upside, you know, coming back. That sounded like a Jimmy Buffett song. Yeah, right. <laughs> let's, Peanut uh, butter. Let's get uh let's get one or two more questions. We got them. Yeah. Let's use the let's get the Mac the mic. Thank you. Um what made you want to start taking pictures? Like how early in your life were you interested in it? And um I wanted to be a truck driver just uh, so because I wanted to get out of the small town I was in. And when we would go on vacation, my dad got transferred to Nebraska when I was like four. So we would come back to Texas and visit family. And I would make him stop at the truck stops to get gas so I could take pictures of all the trucks. And so I don't know if there was something there. Um, and then my uncle was in Vietnam and he shot a lot of photos and he gave me uh, a lot of his albums with all his pictures from his time in Vietnam. And that was um, pretty pivotal. And that was when I was 12. And then Don McCullen is a war photographer in, from the UK. And I bought a book of his uh, called Hearts of Darkness. And that just kind of, you know, latched me in just because the the power of the photographs, you know, and I was just like, but never did I think I was going to make a living at it. It was just 
just all kind of happened, fell into place. So I was lucky. Thank you. Yep. Anybody else? All right. Um, out of everywhere you've been, who were the most inviting and influential people um, and why? Inviting and influential. That's <laughs> um, hard to say. I mean, so many people have been, you know, kind and generous and saved my bacon. Uh, you know, I've had, you know, a guy in uh, Haiti really save my bacon uh so i don't know it's hard to say give any one group or i mean these cowboys i mean everybody that i've photographed for the most part that have allowed me to be there um i remember being at a wedding in india and the family let me come up to the altar during their deal and they over there they pour rice over each other because it's a sign of um, it's all the things positive in India are reflected in rice, you know, prosperity, uh, family, um, and that's why they pour it over each other. We don't know that's why we do it, but it, it comes from India. And I remember, you know, after that was all over, I was back in the bridesmaid room where the bride was and they carry her out in a basket. And, you know, a lot of really intimate scenes. And, and um, I kept thinking to myself afterwards, I don't know how many American uh, people to be wed would allow an Indian photographer to come in these intimate scenes. So it's hard to say um, any one group. I just think I'm pretty grateful to all of them for um, just allowing me to come in. But um, a lot of fond memories uh, of a lot of things. Uh, you know the guy with polio the um the cowboys i mean just all of them uh the guy in india that you know saved me from probably a thirty-five thousand dollar uh payment on a car so that i rolled so he got me out of a, a budget fix so but. well thank you so much rob oh, i think yeah. just simple stories and it's just uh it's inspiring to hear you know, when you open your heart and you, you focus on relationships and individuals and people and, and want to, you know, give them a voice, if you have that capacity, um, you know, how much that can give you as an individual, um, took you around the world. Um, and we can all do that in our own unique ways. Um, really excited, you know, that, jo that Rob joined us tonight. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we'll have a continued friendship and, oh, yeah. and uh, a lot to look forward to in this life. Um, but I want to thank everyone for participating. Um, we've got Keith Sanders coming up next, uh, full circle here. Um, I met Keith probably back in early October um, over at Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, and I was talking to the Reverend Few who played the last podcast, um, the, the husband and wife duo, Nick and Paige. And uh, I was talking to them. I was doing some pop-up concepts at the time. I was looking to book a band and uh keith came up to me he was bartending at the time and was like yo i just heard you talking to to nick and page i'm a musician as well plug me his card and i was like oh, i love the hustle and uh and then here we are like eight you know months later however long it's been and or a year um 
and just incredibly grateful that we'll continue to showcase you know locals and Austin culture here no matter where you're from but we're all contributing in such beautiful ways so um, let's let's all grab a drink and, and kick off the music and, and have a good time tonight all right one all right. last time for yeah. Rob thank you thank you guys Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.